Warning, what you're about to hear may contain mature language, adult situations, and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Trash Heap. It's me, Elliot. Uh, Keith, Keith, Keith is sitting across from me in a virtual realm. That, that's right. Um, I'm Keith King, and you're Elliot King, and we're the Kings. We're the King Brothers. Um, no, we got a show again, you know, like... Yeah, hot the off thing. the heels of our 50th episode. Wow, look at that. 50, you know, 51, I think that's, that's, a, that's a better one. Technically, you know? it was already 51, because we had an episode zero, but... Oh, shit. That was well, literally just a, like, you know, we, we hit 50... 50 proper in the okay in the numeric order but we did we did a zero episode just to just to make sure the goddamn thing would even work you know that's true so yeah 50 episodes yeah we're back here though uh spewing hot garbage all day long loving and laughing and living and lying mm-hmm. you can't keep a, a good uh, trash heap down no, absolutely not. Now, you, Keith, you said uh, you called us by the last name King. What does that mean? Why are you saying that? Well, because this episode we are talking about something very near and dear to our hearts. You could say one of the one of the big reasons we started this show and what's been a, a very heavy influence is is two people: one, John Carpenter, and two, Stephen King. And that's what we're here to talk about today is Stephen King, the mm-hmm. best of the rest. Best of the rest. That means we're not talking about um, movies like The Shining or It or The Shawshank Redemption. Or Stand uh, talk- By Me. Stand By Me. Uh, Misery. Um, we all know those are great. We love them. We're talking about uh, the ones that maybe you forgot about, the ones you maybe never seen. The ones that maybe have a lot of not-so-great parts, but also some pretty good parts. Maybe the ones you didn't even know existed. Yeah, there's a, there's some of those out there. There is at least over 50 Stephen King adaptations. If you look at his IMDb, it's like he's accredited with like something like 900, 295 uh, writing credits. Now, I think a lot of those are just like short stories that have been adapted into student films and whatnot but it's still pretty massive yeah he's pretty thrifty with his the rights to his stories what is it if he i can't remember what his criteria is but for most people who solicit the rights to adapt one of his writing pieces he'll do it for a dollar yeah and so that's where a lot of wild stuff gets made we're only covering actual releases though we're not we're not doing too many indie projects or short films or anything like that um 368 writing credit film writing credits whether that be from adaptations or inspired by or all these things i think that's another thing to keep in account some of these things are like their shows like castle rock which aren't actually based on any of his actual writings just uh inspired by the world i was real. i really felt like that show was kind of a bait and switch dude I, watched I did I watched. not enjoy it, but I was like, wait a second. And it came out so close to it. Yeah. So that when uh, 
what's that guy's name? Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. When he showed up, I was like, okay, am I missing something? I was like, this right. is not even subtle, right? Well, apparently it was there was no relation at all to the it or even a lot of other Stephen King properties at large. There was some relation to some Stephen King properties, but it was very strange. I watched um, the first season. I watched all but the last episode, and I was just like, I don't even care. No, I gave I up too. Yeah. Like one episode left, and I was like, everything's about to be revealed. And I'm like, I don't care. It, it got me interested in the first couple episodes, and then it was just kind of a gradual waning of interest. Yeah, it was really too bad. Because they um, almost had something. Mm-hmm. Let's see. We're not uh, going to talk about some of the ones we like, right? Probably. The ones that you, you might not know exist. What was well, yeah. your entry point into Stephen King movies? Well, that's like, actually interesting. I would say it was probably Stand By Me, um, which is quite a bit different from uh, some of his other stuff. After that, it might have been the It miniseries. But I, well, I was, as we were like preparing this and I was watching, I watched some that I hadn't seen before and I watched, we watched some old ones I had of like these little, you know, more obscure or forgotten Stephen King stuff. And I started thinking a lot about like what it means to be a Stephen King fan or what it is to like this entry point into the awareness of Stephen King. Because it's interesting because I believe you can be a Stephen King fan without ever having read a single Stephen King book because he exists in the cultural lexicon outside of his own writing. And I'm someone who has read some of his stuff and, and seen a ton of movies based on it. But I mean, I definitely became... I definitely saw a ton of stuff before I ever read one of his novels. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like he, other writers or, you know, there's adaptations of their, of their work and that's what they are. They're adaptations. Whereas I feel like his work outside of his writing exists in a zone of its own. Yeah. He, it's crazy because he started out writing and was already a prolific author before he started writing for movies. Yeah, Not just adapting his worth, but actually writing screenplays. And yes. so then after that, it, it just didn't stop. And then once the sort of the Stephen King miniseries became a thing, then it was like really off to the races. And then he cemented himself as just sort of this figure, like this character. Right. Like, like beyond like anything that he'd ever created. Well, and it's interesting because I do think this happens with other stuff to a certain degree. Like... You can be a fan of Sherlock Holmes and like the character of Sherlock Holmes, but have never read a, one of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle books. Oh yeah. Or you can you can be a fan of Batman, but you're a fan of Batman from the movies, not from the comic books. Or even if from the comic books, that doesn't mean you read the original Batman comic books. Same with like Conan the Barbarian. Like a lot of people, I bet you don't even know that those were like books before they were movies. Type the of Pink thing. Panther. Was that a book? That was an issue when I was a kid. No, the movies versus the cartoon. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the I don't know where the movies came from, but the movies were had nothing to do with a, you know, pink cartoon cat. The Pink Panther was uh, some kind of a like a jewel thief or something or a spy. Yeah. Well, like it, was say about, it was about a like a bumbling French detective or something like that. Right? Yeah, or, or say like, oh, I'm a Game of Thrones fan. It's like, well, are you a Game of fan of Game of Thrones of the show or the books or both? Because you can be all three of those things. Now, what's now those things happen a lot, you know. But those are characters or individual books or individual series, you know. 
what's unique about Stephen King, it's not like, oh, I'm a fan of this Stephen King character, even though I've never read the Stephen King book. It's you can be a fan of Stephen King's work as it exists in a cinematic universe, or even like you could be a fan of like his book covers. You know, like I love the style of his horror novel covers from the 80s and 90s. There's all these different ways you can appreciate him that's really unique in that sense of like how much he exists as part of the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, it's it's such a staggering degree. I, and I wonder what, how he feels about that. If he even has like a, a true comprehension of how big his reach is. I'll tell you exactly how he feels about it. One million, two million, three million, four million, five million, six million, ten million, twenty million, fifty hundred dollars. That's how he feels about it. <laughs> but he feels pretty, pretty good. Fifty million hundred dollars. Fifty million hundred dollars. Uh, have you ever looked? I looked up his net worth. It's like almost a billion dollars or something. That's insane. That makes sense. That makes absolute sense. Stephen King net worth. $500 million. So halfway to a billion. Hopefully he pays a, a very large staff to manage that money because if you've ever listened to interviews with him, like he grew up like, I think he had to like walk outside to use the bathroom type shit. Mm -hmm. And I also think too, it's kind of like there's a tone that exists in the Stephen King movies that's kind of a uh, unique to them that doesn't necessarily exist in the the way he writes. You know, like I think in the 80s and early 90s, there's a handful of movies made by you know a few different directors that kind of developed this like what a Stephen King movie is. And so that certainly doesn't translate to every adaptation, but you'll in later years, you'll get movies that are like obviously influenced by those movies and the, and the style in which they were uh, more so than the actual Stephen King style of writing themselves. You know, the funny so, thing is, I can't tell if you mean Mick Garris or not. I would I would include him in there for sure, partially to a certain degree. Yeah, I, I was say, like, either you're talking about Mick Garris because yeah, you can spot a Mick Garris movie a mile away. Mm -hmm. But then also, you could also be talking about like Pet Cemetery, maybe Firestarter. Yeah, I'm talking about those. I'm talking about definitely the the original it miniseries, uh, uh, the Rob Reiner stuff. Uh, I would actually say the Rob. I've never read Misery, but the body and you've so never I mean, read Misery. I've never read Misery. Holy shit! Uh, the 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 Stand by Me and the the novel the novella the body are fairly close to each other. That's one of the closer in tones adaptations. But there's definitely like if you read his books and then you watch his movies, there's like some that are kind of more in line with with that, and there's other ones that have this like this distinctive like. Like I said, this distinctive Stephen King tone that is not necessarily something that comes directly from the books. And to me, that really just kind of expresses how much this world exists outside of him. And I think a perfect example of that is the movie Lawnmower Man, which if we, you know, like I'm sure, <laughs> Keith, you're aware of this, but the movie is not actually based on a Stephen King book, even though it says Stephen King's Lawnmower Man. It was a separate script. Uh and they, the studio that owned it had the rights to the short story, The Lawnmower Man, which has a completely different plot. And they just said, like, well, we'll just say this is based on it. Throw in a guy mowing the lawn every now and then, and we'll call it Stephen King's Lawnmower Man. That being said, you watch that movie unaware of this. It seems totally in line that this could be based on one of his more throwaway short stories, you know? 
Yes. And it has nothing to do with him. So that's where I'm saying like this tone exists. This this body of work exists well beyond himself. It's integrated itself into the cultural mythology. The wild part being like once you add all that up, Stephen King essentially is inhabiting the role of Sutter Kane from In the Mouth of Madness. Where the, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the author has become so powerful that he, he controls reality as we know it. 100%, yeah. That's amazing. And then you see right there, that's the the pairing of John Carpenter and Stephen King that I was talking about at the beginning. No, I, I think, think critically, would... actually, Christine was one of Carpenter's best. Yeah, maybe not with fans because ultimately it's about a haunted car. But yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, yeah, I think the the Cisco and Ebert review of it was glowing. Oh, really? I didn't, oh, all right. Yeah, they praised the all the effects and uh, the performance of the lead character, and uh, obviously the cinematography by Dean Cundey is mm-hmm. top notch. So yeah, I would say that's another one of the movies though, the two that also kind of influenced what is the tone of a Stephen King movie versus what is the tone of the Stephen King book, you know, uh, that exists. I mean, that has existed before in, in pop culture where it's like, you know, the universe, the 1930s universal monster movies, there's kind of an air, a tone and aura around them that is very different from the actual movies themselves in terms of presentation. You know, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so your your perception and consumption of those things is doesn't match the like when you actually sit down and watch the movie in full. Right. It's not quite right. the same energy or or aura around it. Yeah, it's strange it's strange how that occurs with so many things. I'd say even into the modern era with as far as like modern horror movies are concerned, uh even like I'd say Scream. Mm-hmm. I think Scream is definitely one of those things because the way people uh, have embraced Ghostface as in the same way they've embraced uh, Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees is kind of to a, a, an absurd level at this point. I remember when this, the original Scream movies came out and uh, most horror fans, <laughs> they rallied against the kind of pop culture uh, hip slasher wave. Right. Right. Everyone was everyone hated the mask because it looked like a generic Halloween store costume. And, you know, the killer was just a guy or more than one guy. But it's still to this day, especially with the release of the new sequel, it has that that feel to it that it's this character and this thing is like greater than the sum of its parts. Well, yeah, totally. I think I've I to, to this day, I don't really I, I love the concept of Scream, but I don't like the execution of it very much but I appreciate it more as it has kind of developed into this thing beyond itself of like, what can you do with those ideas type of thing? Oh yeah, definitely. I wonder if Stephen King likes scream. Probably. I bet, I bet if we go through his Twitter, he'll probably have some kind of comment on it, but it's, it's funny because he never really delved into that territory. Into like the, the self-referential, uh, or the like the meta, or even just like a simple slasher. Well, I would say maybe in some of his more short stories. I mean, some of the films based on some of his short stories, which is not necessarily what he intended. There's some slasher elements to it. I would say that Graveyard Shift is 
in many ways, at least the movie is in many ways a slasher film. How dare you? Oh, we'll, I'll, we'll get deep How into that one, buddy. How dare you? We'll get deep into that one. You know, I once heard someone say that that they didn't consider... I know, I'm not saying I agree with this. I just think it's a, kind of an interesting concept that a slasher movie isn't really a horror movie. It's just an action movie where you place, replace guns with knives. Was it Roger Ebert that said that? No, no, it was somebody I know. Oh, like, just a normal person. Just a normal. He wasn't that normal. He was a weirdo. Uh, he was like <laughs> a gen, he was a genuine weirdo. He was a mailman I used to know. And uh, well, yeah, I just I don't agree with it. But I kind of, but I thought it was an interesting concept. I could see where he's coming from. Yeah, it's definitely a provocative statement. But yeah, I don't think that's. I think it is a fine line between all of those types of movies, like a thriller, an action, a horror. Right. Well, I mean, the first Terminator being a, I mean, we're not breaking any new ground by saying that that's, you know, kind of a slasher movie or, or Oh, no, that's a definitely movie. A, a movie that or an opinion that's become pretty prominent in the last uh, five to ten years. And yeah, I think it's I mean, true. I think it's right on I, the money. I 100%. I've always thought that. I think it, I think that's a perfect example of where like you said that fine line of how you can straddle both. But we're not here to talk about the Terminator. Stephen King didn't have anything to do with that. Nope. We're here to talk about things he maybe had something to do with. You know, yeah, loosely maybe. had something to do with. Yeah, maybe, maybe he was involved. His name was his name was mentioned on the final product. Um, but no, I just wanted to like, talk about that because I just thought it was interesting about thinking about how I, like you said, like how did you come to Stephen King? And I came to Stephen King initially not from his books or his short stories, but it was from his movies. And I think that's the way I probably a lot of people first come to Stephen King. So how does that, what does that mean? Like, how are you a Stephen King fan? Is, can you call yourself one, even if you've never read your book, his books? And I think you can. I don't like to call myself a fan of things because sure. I think that makes me sound uh, childish and uh, hollow and like I don't have any independent thoughts or am not in control of my actions. I think there's a lot of negative connotations that go with that label. And, I, if, and I, if you don't believe me, watch the movie The Fan or Big Fan, <laughs> uh, and you'll have your evidence right there. But uh, my entry point into Stephen King was actually his cartoon series, uh, The Stephen King Mysteries, what? where he goes around his small town. This is not a real thing. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. Okay, Jesus No, it Christ. was Cat's Eye, probably. <laughs> Okay, I was like, what the? <laughs> I got so excited, but also I was like, I know this isn't real, but if it is... I feel We're at that point in the future, though, where people are digging up some obscure things, and the collective memory is so kind of skewed that I have a feeling that things like that are going to be more common, where it's going to be like, hey, remember this? And everyone's going to go, no, what the hell? That's I can't believe that's real. Or well, thi- I, things that were falsely created just as right. a gag will gather so much steam that eventually the previous reality will be forgotten and they'll be like surprised to know that it, that's not actually real. Man, the Stephen King mysteries, I don't know how anyone hasn't tapped that idea. Like, I don't know how he hasn't tapped that idea where it's just, even if it's not a cartoon, but just a uh, like a t- made-for-TV special of him solving a crime. It seems like something he would really get into. Oh, yeah, little little Stevie King running around New England. Oh, my God. Like, oh, God, with, like, giant Coke bottle glasses and, like, the gap in his teeth. And Okay, here's what we got to do. We got to find somebody we know with a, with a weird-looking kid. 
and we got to let them exploit that child. Let us exploit that child for our own. Like, yeah, we're going to pay Stephen King that dollar for the rights to his, his youth. <laughs> Good Lord, I love this. All right, well... What did what did you watch, Keith? Do you have anything you want to you want to start? Well, start I did want to talk about Cat's Eye. Oh yeah, quick because sure. that was I believe like I'm looking at kind of some of the the 80s Stephen King movies that would have been on television, and it's mostly Drew Barrymore movies. Actually, it's Cat's right. Eye, it's Firestarter, uh, and maybe The Dead Zone. I I may have seen that. Um, oh, but shit. I might... I was born the year it came out, and yeah. Uh, it also, it never really had too much of a appeal to me when I was younger because there are mm-hmm. no monsters or glowing things or creatures to, to speak of. It's just, you know, weird looking Christopher Walken napping for most of the movie and then yeah. trying to assassinate the mayor or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but just back to backtrack for a second, that actually might've been my first encounter with Stephen King because that's one of my mom's favorite movies. Oh. And I remember seeing that movie at a, at a very young age. Okay. You know? But I probably wasn't even aware that it was a Stephen King, you know, story for till sometime quite later, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the earliest adaptation of Stephen King might be Salem's Lot, right? There, it, uh, Carrie is number one. Oh, yeah. Okay. That and then Sa- Salem's Lot it was was the next, yes. Yeah, and I, I definitely did not see Salem's Lot. I may have seen commercials on TV for it, but I was of the age that my parents were actually being responsible and not showing that to me. Mm-hmm. That, that would go out the window uh, not too many years later, but... Yeah, uh, Cat's Eye was definitely it. And that was such a... That one's burned into my memory. It's a mo- an anthology with three different stories, but the big kind of story that everyone remembers is the story of the little girl having her soul sucked out by a troll that breaks into her room every night, and her only line of defense is her cat named General. And there's a very memorable scene at the, in the climax where the goblin is trapped on the record player and the cat, the cat switches the record player on <laughs> with his little paw and the record starts spinning faster and faster. And it's playing, uh, what I'll be missing you by the police. Uh, huh. yeah. And so that is definitely burned into my brain. Uh, and just the idea of like a little, a little troll c- crawling out of the wall into a, a child's bedroom in order to suck out their soul. Like that was the kind of thing that at a young age just like grabbed onto my, my brain and captured my imagination right out of the gate and not knowing what Stephen King, who Stephen King was and not knowing what an anthology was, uh, not really understanding how you could have three stories inside one movie. That's where I, my, the rest of my memory is blocked out. Like the, the two other stories about, one about quitting smoking and the other about having an affair with a uh, high stakes gambler's wife. Uh, those were of much less interest. Those are more adult mm-hmm. stories, but when it's, when it's about a kid and I'm a kid, like the relatability is off the charts, right? Oh, it's insane. Like back to, you know, going back to like it, when I'm, when that was, a, when that came out as a TV miniseries, it was a huge deal. Like, and I had missed, I was like, I think, and that came out in 1990 so depending on what time of the year i was yeah. seven or eight years old and i had missed the first installment 
and then I only watched I watched the second half and that's the first thing I saw was the second half and I loved it and I wasn't really even I was also wasn't scared by it and then it was such a big deal that a couple two three months later they replayed the whole thing and I watched the first half which has features way more of the stuff with the kids obviously and I was genuinely terrified it is even when I was a little kid, movies really didn't scare me. I would get, you know, I'd get like startled scared or I want to stop watching it or something. But like once the movie was over, uh, I was generally fine. Like I wasn't like walking around or couldn't sleep at night. I straight up could not sleep at night after watching the first half of it. But it's like that thing, that relatability. It's about all these kids approximately my age being murdered by this demon clown. And I think the very fact that it... Uh, the whole conceit of it was you had to believe in it in order for it to be able to harm you was really scary. Yeah. And when you're a kid at that age, con- trying to control your emotions and thoughts is really difficult. Like you're just sort right. of at the mercy of events unfolding. Well, one thing I was like as a kid too, I got really scared of about the, uh, like the, 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 the you know, the Mothman. Uh, story legend like I was reading this book about like American you know cryptids or whatever and for whatever reason the Mothman really got under my skin uh, I think it was just stuff about like people talking about it, like scratching at your windows and looking out the window and seeing <laughs> these glowing eyes and stuff and that really disturbed me and I I remember creating a set of rules because I knew the Mothman wasn't real but it was, I was still afraid of it so I created a set of rules arbitrary rules to protect myself so I could sleep at night, which was the the Mothman was afraid to touch the human head and was afraid to touch covers. So as long as I slept with the covers completely up to my chin, I'd be okay. That's and true. That's... The, the Mothman does have a difficulty grasping fabrics. <laughs> it's okay with scratching hard surfaces, but grasping limp fabrics is very difficult. But in that same way, it was like, it related to it in the sense that this fictional creature only caused me harm by me being afraid of it, you know, and the, like, and it can only hurt you. And then Stephen King book and movie, if you are afraid of it, if you acknowledge its existence, if you believe in it, right. And me being afraid of Mothman, which I knew wasn't real, was causing me actual discomfort and pain in real life in the sense that I was, like, sleeping poorly and anxious. Right. It made it real. Your fear made it real. Exactly. And that's why I think that, like, that's why out of all of the horror movies I watched as a kid, that is the one that had, like, such a long-lasting effect on me, where the other stuff was just kind of like, oh, whatever, monsters aren't real, like, uh, this, you know, vampires aren't real. But I was like, but this thing is like, it's not real unless I make it real. Your trauma, listen, your trauma is very important to me. However, I want to cut in right now and uh, just point out to everyone, if you haven't already clocked it, that at the top of the episode, you made a big point of saying we wouldn't be talking about the popular movies like it. And now you're talking about it. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Meanwhile, I have delivered all my promise of talking about Cat's Eye. So just in case you guys are keeping score at home. That's where we're at. Keith won, Elliot zero. <laughs> All right, you win this one, Keith. 
No, but it's true. And that's the exciting thing about being a kid and having an imagination. When you get older, having an imagination that has negative consequences is no fun. It just ruins right. your life. When you're yeah. a kid, it's very fun and entertaining, and it gets more fun to tell those stories as you grow up. Like, I remember just seeing commercials for things like the Tommy Knockers and just being yeah. mesmerized and being like, yeah. and looking out, because I grew up in a rural area, and looking out at the woods and being like, well, is there a glow coming from my woods? Usually yeah. it was just like someone's shop light or a floodlight or something like that. But it would it would make me wonder and be like, what's out there? Right. What's What's beyond those trees at night when no one's looking? And that's one of the things that was so important to me about Stephen King movies, even the stupid ones, because I have seen some of the really stupid ones, like trucks, and uh-huh. and not not even sometimes they come back, but sometimes they come back again, which is or not a Stephen come... King movie, but is like loosely inspired by a movie that's based on Stephen King. Oh well, then there's also sometimes they come back for more, which is just like. <laughs> It's just Not an absolute guard. No, sometimes they come back again is stupid. I will say there's some very cool effects, and the idea of a pool of blood in a cave uh, that is a portal for demons to come out of uh, as they dump sacrifices into it is very... There's some awesome aspects of that. Well, I think that, yeah, that's absolutely... There's... So much stuff in Stephen King's stuff, and he, he's like obviously notorious for just writing and writing and writing and writing and cramming all this stuff in there. Oh, oh and re- but, redoing the same idea over and over again until he's satisfied with it, right? Right. But I mean, <laughs> what happens there is just what you're saying. Like this, you know, this this story might be kind of dumb, or this ad- adaptation is bad, but there's enough cool stuff in it, and there's enough neat ideas that you that you still enjoy it or at least feel compelled to sometimes watch it again you know even when yeah. you thought it was bad you know like uh i'll probably watch pet cemetery multiple times throughout my life and i don't think that's a good movie but there's enough stuff in there where i'm like oh okay well, let's go check this out see now you're roping me into this i because now i gotta say something about pet cemetery and it's the see, same that thing was part I of my say. plan it's the same thing i always say i don't think it is a bad movie i don't think it's very entertaining And it's surprising to me that so many people are just rabid for Pet Cemetery. But I guess a lot of people are scared of killer kids and think that's all creepy and everything. For my money, Pet Cemetery 2 is still one of the most entertaining movies that I've seen. Well, you know, I think too, though, for people our age... I think there's a lot of like atmosphere and lore kind of around Pet Cemetery. It was like this yes. movie that was on cable. And then particularly Pet Cemetery 2. I think I think I was aware of Pet Cemetery 2 before I was aware of Pet Cemetery. And I was just like I was seeing previews for that and I'm like, "Oh, what the hell is this?" Yeah, or you know? the VHS cover in the video store where it's like it's Edward Furlong and his his fat boyfriend uh, and they got the shovel and the tagline was like "Raise some hell" or something like yeah. that. And it was like, "What the fuck is that?" So I think that's the, the, I think probably largely that is the nostalgia factor for a lot of people kicking in, you know, um, and that's why there's such, such a, a f- like loving a- around that one. Well, so we're, we're into the 1980s, Stephen King. Right. So first we can talk about Graveyard Shift since you watched mm-hmm. that. And then I want to talk about real quick, Maximum Overdrive. And okay. I can't believe that came out in 1986. 
maximum overdrive and then trucks which would follow about 11 years later <laughs> <laughs> graveyard shift yeah graveyard well, so, shift so there's an ongoing joke between you and i that's not i don't i don't think it's ever been brought up on the show but how i pretend like i've never seen that movie and i don't even know that it exists and i imagine uh, that started if i had to guess because i am constantly mentioning it Constantly mentioning it, and also the fact that I, I had seen Graveyard Shift, but I really couldn't remember anything about it, uh, other than that there's a graveyard shift, like people working at night. There's a there's, work schedule. There's a work schedule. Which is the most terrifying aspect. There's some rats, and then there's a giant rat bat thing. There and is not some rats. There is a lot of rats. There are a lot of rats. So if you are bothered by rats, do not watch this movie, because they are fucking everywhere so yeah i did rewatch it um i will say i probably enjoyed it i still think it's a pretty throwaway movie but i definitely enjoyed it a lot more than i did the first time also i think that my first reactions to it were what the fuck is going on and diet pepsi the movie great for killing calories and also great for killing rats the opening scene of this movie a guy just punches a nail for seemingly no reason and it's completely taken for granted like, it's not like, oh, that was weird. He just stabs his hand against a nail. I was like, better put a band-aid on that. And two minutes later, he's dead. And I, that just set up the whole tone for me of just like, oh, what? They're just going to do things just because it's, they can't, because, and it's not necessarily going to have to do with anything. Yeah, it's crazy that the nail never shows up again. Right. The, the nail doesn't have any exposition to explain. The nail doesn't save the day. Shut up. It's like, why did he punch the nail in the first place? <laughs> but here's the other thing, too. Like, a lot of these movies, most of the characters' movies are very forgetful. This is how much I, how little I remembered of the first movie. As I'm watching it again, the guy who plays the villain, which is the dad from Monster Squad, I remember Steven him. Mocked. Yeah, I remembered him being that in my head memory he was the hero, and the guy who actually plays the hero I don't remember being in the movie. Oh yeah, I think that is one of <laughs> I forget that actor's name, but I think that's one of his uh, admirable qualities is that he could get lost in a crowd of two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he is the blandest like, like nobody. <laughs> but he was in a lot of movies. Was he? What else is he? I mean, he looks like I don't know his I, name. I can't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> he's great though he's in some like martial arts and like half-baked action movies mm. of the 80s and yeah he's in a surprising amount of movies but yeah he's definitely like he's a uh, white white bread toast for sure yeah but that's perfect because he's shy he's quiet he keeps to himself and he's he's got the fucking absolute monster scene chewer steven mocked to play against and so I mean, he offers a nice contrast. And that guy does do, he's giving it his all. What are he's you doing eating? a good job. I didn't hear a you waffle. eating. Yeah, I'm eating a waffle. Gross. It's making like a weird, like, like crunchy, like depressed air release sound. Oh, that's just my joints. <sighs> it's gross. That, that isn't, yeah, sorry. Put some, gonna get... put some fucking syrup on that. <laughs> there's, there's a peanut butter on it. <laughs> You guys are just gonna have to deal with this until uh, it's till it's done. Little bites here and there. Um, you love this movie. I love right? Graveyard Shift. I think it's a just a cool ass monster movie. It's about 
blue collar workers at a cotton mill. They hate their lives. They hate their jobs. They're all alcoholics. They've all got personality disorders, gambling debts, pregnant, pregnant women uh, that are upset with them. There's one lady character that's uh, tougher than a $2 steak and doesn't put up with any bullshit. Everyone is constantly sweating because it's so hot and humid in... where It's set in Maine, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's set in Maine. Their boss is an evil tyrant. No one can tell where his accent's from. There's tons of fan theories about whether he's from like a Eastern European death squad or something and he's hiding out in America. There's all kinds of wild... Ideas. Well, he has. It's great. He has, he has like that main type of main accent of like, well, you say here, uh, there, was a, there once was a man who walked down the street with a fishing pole. Like, he has that, but it's so like over the top. But yeah, but he also looks like he's from like one of the smaller countries in like the Russian circle. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's very. He's very odd, and I think that's part of what's interesting. Is like he's an absolute psychopath too. He delivers totally. like. All these crazy lines, like he's like, one of his guys is like dancing or singing to the radio, and he's like, "We're gonna get you on Star Search." <laughs> like it's 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 absurd. It's so much fun. And then Brad Dourif plays the exterminator, the Vietnam veteran exterminator. That is definitely a highlight of the of the movie. Who sure. is obsessed with murdering rats in violent and creative ways, mm-hmm. and. He delivers that monologue where he starts tearing up. Like, why do we? Everything grinds to a halt where while he delivers that speech, and it's just like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's disgusting. The mo- the giant bat monster that's living under the the cotton mill is cool looking, and he it eats a bunch of people. And there's a final showdown in a in a cavern filled with skeletons. Like, it's great. What's not to like about this movie? Well, I like all the things you're mentioning about the movie. Yeah. My, I guess my, my issue is is that there's not necessarily enough connective tissue and there's enough downtime in between those things for my mind to kind of like, you know, kind of drift. And one of the things, the big problems of this movie is a type of movie where all the characters are oblivious to the threat that's imminent until the very end. Hell yeah, that's realism, baby. But... Maybe, but it also provides no tension. It's like if you watch Jaws, and uh, at then at the end of the movie, um, Roy Schreider and Quint and uh, uh, Hooper all go out on a fishing trip, and then they don't even realize that a shark is following them until the very end. You know, and that that could be a fun setup where it's like, ooh, they don't know about the threat, but like you eventually have to kind of encounter this threat, and that only kind of happens in the very end of the movie where they go down to clean up the basement or something and i would venture to say you know this is based on a short story that i would venture to say that that's probably most of the story takes place in the basement in this in the in the short story and a lot of the stuff earlier in the movie is what they threw in there to fill out the runtime you know oh yeah it's definitely a concept stretch then and and i'm aware of that but i'll never ask this movie to be more than it is because I remember just seeing a movie on television and it was about people working and I was like, this is boring. And then a Mm -hmm. big slimy monster shows up with giant gross wings covered in slime. And I'm there for it, baby. 
Yeah. Like, and now as a, as an adult uh, who works, now I relate to these characters a lot more. When I was a kid, I didn't care about, you know, people complaining about work or having a job or working overtime on 4th of July weekend or any of that nonsense. But now I identify with these these psychopaths that are stuck in a stuck in a cave to make minimum wage. I mean, that's kind of funny because the actual villain of this story is is the boss. You know, it's not the the rat monster because the boss is the one who's mean and nasty and you know makes people do all these things and is abusive and the rat monster is just looking for lunch but so the so then what happens in the movie is the rat monster kills the boss who is the actual villain so therefore the rat monster becomes the hero of the story but then and also the, the new owner of the cotton mill absolutely and but then the quote-unquote hero that, like you said, it was the very forgettable guy. He kills the rat monster, who is the new hero. So therefore, the actual villain of the story is the hero. That's true. I don't know. I did like. I did enjoy this way more than I did the first time. I don't think I'll forget as much about it this time around. But I do wish there had just been a little bit more here and there. To like, I think it's just one of those movies that kind of rides right on the edge of like, oh, if it just had you know a tiny bit more juice in it. It would be like it would not be a forgotten Stephen King movie. It would be like fuck yeah, we all love this movie. Let me put it to you that perhaps it is your responsibility to bring a little bit of extra juice to your viewing experience. What do you think about that? I think that's baloney. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's total. It's like hey, we didn't write a very good movie, so it's like you write a better one in your head while you watch it. Okay? Put a, put oh, an extra little bit of sugar into your coffee and. Let that fill in the gaps and meet you halfway. It also has one of the arguably the best piece of cover art for a Stephen King movie that I've ever seen. Oh, the cover art's great. The The title of the movie is great. I think that's one of the things that actually does genuinely piss me off about it is you've taken one of the greatest titles you could ever have and and applied it to a movie that's just Okay. I mean, I disagree. I love when when the boss character says <laughs> he didn't have to say it the way he does, but when he tells uh, the nobody guy, just for emphasis, he's like, he says the hours like eleven to seven, graveyard shift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, those parts are all like you could make a greatest hits album. They do. The credits are the greatest. <laughs> it's the best part of the whole movie. I did like it. Anyway, but that's all right, because I think later on we're going to talk about a movie that I really ended up really liking that you feel pretty lukewarm yeah, let's on. Let's just so. talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, so we're still in the 80s. Do you have any, any any Stephen King movies from the 80s to talk about? No. Nah. No? Okay. I mean, uh, not that I... Not that... Uh, I think I, a lot of those movies from the 80s are yeah. the ones that are kind of like, oh, yeah, these these are classics. Or even if they're not classics, they're not forgotten type yeah. of thing. I think it's Everybody loves 90s, Silver Bullet. That's not. Right. That's not. When you get into the 90s, that's where there's just like some like, wait, what the hell is this? I don't remember this movie coming out at all. Yep. You said it. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, Maximum Overdrive really quick. Yeah. Because the more I watch it, the better it gets. And this idea mm-hmm. of like, oh, God, it's such a terrible, inept, incompetent piece of shit. It's really not. Mm-hmm. Like the stories behind it, of uh, the fact that Stephen King doesn't really remember directing it because he was 
on drugs and in the in the throes of his alcoholism and all that shit. Yeah. That's all fun and well and good. This is actually a, a fairly competent movie and arguably the best movie in the subgenre of vehicles come to life. Better than Christine? Better than Herbie Fully Loaded? I mean, that's haunted. Yeah, Christine I guess, yes. is haunted. That is not a. That is not a. Uh... Well, no, Christine is like they talk about how the car is born bad. You know, like is it a ghost or is it the the spirit of an evil car? It how is feels a car more... born bad? It's manufactured it... in a factory. It definitely feels like a more of a haunted. It, it, it was then. manufactured with an, an evil acetylene torch or like a fucking like satanic riveter. Like, yeah, what are you talking about here? The, the vinyl interior was cursed. Yeah. <laughs> the steering no, yeah. wheel was treated with the blood of a child. No, yeah, you're right, though. Like, maximum overdrive is cars are not alive. Suddenly they are alive. Yeah, definitely. And it's either aliens or. It's science or something. No one really knows, but it's pretty good. And there, that that's another one where like the writing's fun, the performances are fun. There's gore, violence, there's explosions. Uh, it's got a soundtrack by ACDC, and no, I've, I've seen worse movies than Maximum Overdrive. A movie that is that much fun, you can't say like is all bad. Exactly, and the, the kind of the big thing here too is. Like you said with Graveyard Shift, it, it felt like it was stretched thin. Maximum Overdrive is based on the story by Stephen King, Trucks, which is about two and a half pages. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a whole lot of nothing. And so they really had to like fill in the gaps. Eleven years later, the adaptation of Trucks would come out. I have never seen that one. It is, without a doubt. If you're comparing the two, it is the inferior movie <laughs> across the board. However, there are some fun scenes in it, like a a remote control car assaulting people. It was a straight-to-TV movie. It was not even straight-to-video. Straight-to-TV. But it's mean. essentially the same the same structure and everything, right? Uh, everyone realizes that uh, vehicles are coming to life. They hole up in a restaurant. If you've ever wanted to see a uh, an ice truck attempt to kill people, like a refrigerated truck kill people, then this is your movie. All right. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> Let me put a, you... put a bow on it, uh, as quoted by a TV guide, which rated it two out of four stars, saying, The film is all premise and no plot, a problem made worse by the clumsy addition of extraneous gory sequences. I just think it's funny that uh, there's been, you know, over the years, just so many kind of poor takes on Maximum Overdrive when Mm -hmm. there's really a lot there to be if you want to be entertained. Meanwhile, the the faithful, quote unquote, faithful adaptation is out there and it is subpar. I'm I'm probably I'm probably never going to watch it. So there you go. That's my I I caught it on TV one day. I think I was I was either hungover or sick, and I was just you know when you're sit you're under the weather and your brain is just like we're not making any decisions today. Oh yeah. If this is what's on, this is what's on. I'll watch way weirder stuff when I'm sick for sure. 
so we got we're in the 90s still are there any 90s ones that you like a lot that maybe are uh falling to the wayside yes and i think uh some of these have actually gone some of these have gotten more popular as time goes on which is cool to see uh i have never seen the tommy knockers um mm-hmm. as i said i saw uh, ads for it when I was a kid and that was about it. My parents uh, didn't want to put it on the TV so I was kind of at their whims. That was in 1993. In 1992, however, I don't know if this is Mick Garris's first movie but uh, it very well may be uh, Sleepwalkers. I actually I like in... quite a bit. So it is not his first. He did definitely did like Critters, one of the Critters movies before that. Oh, but his first uh, Stephen King adaptation. Oh yes, I think I think you are right about that. Which is not even necessarily an adaptation because it, Stephen King wrote that directly for the screen. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely right. This may have been when he uh, was getting into movies. I mean, I'd, I'd say this is one of his best. I what know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, bad takes on the the effects and some of the the sort of d- digital morphing and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah. In terms of stories of... about evil cats, here, here and here we are with uh, Stephen King sort of honing another idea where uh, instead of the cat being a hero, the cats are. Uh, wait, the cats are the villain. Yes. They're also the protagonists. They're like the heroes and the villains. The yeah, the, the evil cat people hate cats and slaughter the cats, and they suck the right. souls out of humans. It's a very strange one. It's very... You know, when you say it's one of the best, you mean it's one of the best Stephen King movies, period, or it's one of the best Mick Garris movies? I think I think one of the best Stephen King movies that Stephen King has written for, for film. One of his best screenplays. Okay. Interesting. And maybe well, one of the better uh, Mick Garris movies. It's definitely one of the most fun, that's for sure. Uh, that's what I mean when I'm talking about Bess. I'm talking about yeah. whether I enjoyed my viewing of this or not. It seems like very much that it's supposed to be comedic, but also like some somebody in control of, of decisions didn't understand that. Like The script is pretty goofy, and it seems intentionally so. A lot of the scenes are pretty goofy. And it's hard to say if that's intentional or not because Mick Garris kind of has like an all over the place directing style that sometimes is like pretty good and sometimes it's just like, what the fuck am I watching right now? Which is really too bad because he directed Critters 2 and Critters mm-hmm. 2 is like a top shelf horror comedy. Yeah. And so but it, based on that alone, it's some of his movies after that are sort of confusing as, and it must have been... A variety of factors but uh yeah sleepwalkers really is like it doesn't quite have the same like perfect tone and consistency of of a critters too but wait a minute this is about a mother and son cat people who fuck each other who are afraid of cats and then they also like cats there was probably some meddling involved in in the production were they really mother and son or was that just their cover I get the vibe that they are genuinely mother and son. But it could have just been a cover. But they really seem to be mother and son. And in real life as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mick Garris, though, he, you know, he, after this, he did follow it up with The Stand. Ah, uh, yes. 
Which the stand's kind of funny because I think when the stand came out, that was a big deal. It was an it was event. A mini, wow. It was a mini series, and like it was, yeah, and like you said, it was an event. Like that was huge. I remember so many commercials. You had big, big actors in it. Yeah, and the man himself, Stephen King. Yeah, and that's one I think that has kind of become slightly forgotten since it came out. You know, like I don't think if it came out today, it would be as well received as it was when it came out. Uh, I, let me let me drop a bomb on you real quick. Not unlike the bomb that is dropped in the original stand to end the show, but uh, they they did make it today. They did. They made a new miniseries of the stand. And it went over like a fart in church. This one, I think, I, you know, to me, this is in a lot of ways like the quintessential trash heap movie in the sense that it is, it's got a lot of great things going for it and a lot of bad things going for it. I personally love this movie. I watched this, just the whole miniseries every couple of years. And I didn't even see it when it came out. So it wasn't like there's no nostalgia factor. I saw it much later in life. It, but it's the quintessential trash heap movie in the sense that it has some terrible dialogue and writing and then some pretty good parts and then like has really inconsistent acting like some actors doing a great job some are terrible some good actors are doing a bad job some bad actors are doing a good job uh it's corny as hell but it is still so compelling and there's something at its nucleus that keeps me coming back again and again and again and that you know that is where the merit comes from despite any flaws and cracks that it has throughout yeah there are so many great moments but then there's also yeah just those abysmal cornball like the whole like corin nemic subplot where he's like starts out as a shy nerd poet who has a life lifelong crush on his neighbor and then mm-hmm. he evolves into an evil selfish dickhead and starts wearing like riding a motorcycle and wearing like leather and just yeah. looks absurd. I know some of that is played for laughs, but it's also just like, it's a real eye roll inducing thing. But the whole opening of it, the, the, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, oddly relatable uh, pandemic and outbreak is extremely well done and very impressive and sets a good tone. And yeah, as this series goes on, it really is just like a roller coaster of like great scenes and great moments and bad scenes and bad moments and, it's it's pretty incredible, and I think it. What is it? Eight hours long total? It's six somewhere between six and eight hours long. It's yeah. it's it's hefty. Yeah, we had it recorded on VHS tapes. You know, the little mm-hmm. label it just says "The Stand Part One." Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was such a huge deal, and I hope I go to heaven. Well, I got news for you, Keith. <laughs> You're ending up in Las Vegas with Miguel Farah. I don't want to be in Las Vegas. It looks hot. It looks hot and like no one is showering. Sorry. I can't do anything about that. I can't help you out here. Uh, One of my favorite aspects, though, is the the wonderful friendship between Rob Lowe and... The guy from Coach? Yeah, the guy from Coach. (laughs) It's Uh, really great. They really do have like a, a good thing going with those two guys. Like one is a deaf mute and the other is sort of a... Uh, a farmland simpleton and Mm -hmm. they are able to overcome their shortcomings and kind of keep each other company in this post-apocalyptic world it's pretty good and they're just riding riding bikes around the wasteland yeah that's great 
charming. That's arguably one of the best Stephen King uh, notions is the idea of like two adult best friends riding bicycles around uh, a wasteland. Look at the cast on this movie. Bro, Sinise, Ed Harris. Ed Harris is not in this. He, oh, he definitely is. Ed Harris? Yeah. Who does he play in He's uh, one of the military guys in the beginning. He dies pretty quickly. Oh, you are right. Yeah, he's like at the very beginning. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he's not good. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. not good. <laughs> he, he is not the Ed Harris that we know and love. No, like it's very, like it seems like we got to get an Ed Harris type, but they actually just got Ed Harris and he phoned it in. That's right. I forgot about that because, yeah, it's so short. Ed, Ed Harris, Gary Sinise, Molly Ringwald, Ruby D, Ozzy Davis, Miguel Farrow, already mentioned him. Uh, Ray Walton, Akeem Abdul Javar. Oh yeah! Uh, Bring out the, your dead. Rob Lowe, the guy from Coach. Oh, what, what the fuck? Tom Holland is in this. He's the director of Child's Play. Oh, nice. I did not even. I, I probably just like a cameo. I didn't even. What notice. about not Mickey Rourke? Not Mickey Rourke. Who are you talking uh, about? The musician guy. Oh, that dude, so Like the yeah. dirtbag rock singer? He's 100%. They were like, can we get Mickey Rourke? No. Okay. Adam Adam Stork. His find someone who looks like Mickey Rourke. <laughs> wait, wait. We can't find Ad- Mickey Rourke. We got Adam Stork. That's his name. It's Whoa. Like, it's like, the name is close enough. Yeah. It's close enough. Sam Raimi has a cameo in it. So does John Landis. You know that guy? Oh, Shawnee Smith. You guys might not. All you kids out there might know Shawnee Smith from the Saw series. That's crazy to me. People are going to be like, yeah, Shawnee Smith from Saw. Amazing. Hell yeah. Time marches on, brother. Oh, Corin Nemec. You know, Parker Lewis can't lose. Yeah. Matt Frewer. Matt Frewer as the fucking trash can man. Let's go. Oh, Kathy Bates shows up. I don't remember her, honestly. (laughs) It must be. There's a lot of cameos in the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's also a lot of people who are like, not necessarily famous. Joe Bob Briggs. Oh, yeah. What a cameo. I was, I didn't remember, I had no idea who he was when I was, when I first saw this movie. And so, oh, like, totally. I didn't know he was in it until I just watched it recently. Oh, I, re- I watched, uh, rewatched Casino a few, a few years ago for the first time. Yeah. In a long time. And I was like, oh, it's Joe Bob Briggs. That's weird. And then you're like, oh, he has a big part of this movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, weird. I mean, it's not huge, but it's like, it's it's not just a cameo. He has a character who keeps coming up for a, bit, a portion of the movie. But yeah, hopefully that there is a kind of renaissance towards these TV miniseries shows, because I think it makes me want to go back and watch Tommyknockers and, you know, even some of these other dumb ones like Rose Red and Bag of Bones. And... Yeah, Tommyknockers is one I would definitely want to watch. Uh because it's the same with you, I vividly remember the commercials and how eerie they were, but I've never seen it. There's also a lot of really bad ones like out there, like the, the Langoliers. That's not really worth your time. It's not worth the time. I want to recommend it, though, just based on uh, if, if there is like a supercut of Bronson Pinchot. Right. Because I think he's really great. Like as his mental state unravels throughout the movie mm-hmm. and like that scene on the tarmac where... He's like screaming at this board of directors led by Stephen King. And it's like a whole, there's like a whole boardroom table with like the, the green lamps for like no reason outside on this airport. And he's just like losing his mind. The best thing you could do to watch 
the Langoliers, if you're not familiar with it, is go out and find one of those videos where it's just like, people watching clips of it and making fun of it, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it can be a lot of fun that way, but it's uh, it's pretty painful just to watch the movie start to finish. Uh, yeah, there's Desperation. That one's pretty bad. There's a lot of stinkers out there. Desperation's weird because some of it looks good, but then I watched like some full clips of it, and some of them are so like incompetently shot. I was, it's like, what, oh. what were you guys going for? There's one shot where they jam the camera like right into... Ron Perlman's face. Mm-hmm. It's like practically like in his mouth. And it's like, what What were you going for here? Yeah. And it, it was like, it looks like. I love the premise was... though. Like big, That's the, a cool. Big, big hole, mysterious hole opens up uh, in the desert and lets out some evil entity that takes over this town. And the primary sort of agent of this evil is a police officer who's yeah. abusing their power and throwing everyone in jail and possessing people like so it's, all just of that docu- it's, just, it's just a documentary about the police yeah all that shit's cool it's like sign me up but yeah there's yeah the execution is terrible and it is incredibly it's cheap to the point where there's no charm in the cheapness it's just man looks this is like it looks like a like a, a video i made for a class presentation in high school or something yeah Anyway, but a really good one from the 90s, or at least one I really enjoyed that I had never seen before until I planned for this episode is The Night Flyer. The Night about Flyer. A, about a vampire that flies an airplane. Uh, you don't like this movie, correct? There's a strange phenomenon occurring where horror movie fans are chatting with each other and they're saying, The Night Flyer, love this movie so scary remember watching this i saw the night flyer on television one time i was there's a commercial it said stephen king's the night flyer up next i was like oh shit this is great i don't have cable i'm subjected to the worst goddamn movies of all time hopefully this is going to be a spooky gross cool movie the movie i saw was about a fucking tabloid journalist doing jack shit while a i don't know some guy flew a plane around in the rain talking to himself and that was about it and i'm like so what when you are, say you don't what are you guys so excited about so you so watch this movie you said you didn't have cable so you didn't watch this movie on cable then right no so what you definitely saw then was a heavily edited version of this movie oh i'm sure this, like this movie was came out on uh HBO originally. Oh. And it is very gory and very bloody. So you probably saw something that had all those portions taken out. Oh, nice. That's great to hear because yeah, the movie I saw had literally nothing happening in it. If you, if you want to if you want to revisit it, Keith, it's on YouTube. That's where I watched well, it. Well, why don't this you was, tell me what the hell so it's great. all about? Okay, I will. So this is a movie that I like purposely avoided for I mean I mean up until just now, uh, because it's one of those types of movie, like I had no idea that the movie existed around the time that it came out, and it was something that years you know three four five six years later I would just see the video box and I'd be like what the hell is this I don't even remember this and it has the worst type of video box it's just there's 
it just looks slapped together and it has a stupid looking monster on the cover of it and nothing appealing. There's nothing appealing about the box. And then you flip it over and you read about it and this looks cheap and the premise is dumb. And like, I'm like, Oh, a vampire that flies an airplane. Cool. Whatever. I don't care. I had zero interest in this, in this, but I decided to watch it for this show. And I was pleasantly surprised when it started out, I was not into it. It was just felt like for the first few minutes, I was just like, oh, been here, done that. Who cares? Vampires flying a little airplane in a town, blah, blah, blah. Like it just seemed very cheap and generic, which it is all those things. Yet at the same time, it's a lot, it's kind of fun. And it works to me kind of like an extended uh, R-rated episode of The Twilight Zone. So, yes, it is about this journalist type of guy who works for a sleazy tabloid who there he's following around a murderer who flies a small airplane into like local small town landing strips, kills a few people, drinks their blood and then flies away in the middle of the night. As one does. Right. Just normal. Very relatable. So the whole whole concept or setup is that it's oh, it must be a guy who thinks he's a vampire or likes pretending he's a vampire. And that's why he, and so that he's going to, so he's going to follow this guy around to get this sleazy story. And it's, and it's the main characters are really like, he's not a likable dude. He's a real schmuck. Who just the type of guy who will like break into a crime scene and uh, take pictures of your dead parents for this tabloid. I love that when that was a fresh concept, the idea of like, no one no one believes in the old stories and the old movies anymore so we're going to take the we're going to reinvent the vampire concept or we're going to reinvent the werewolf mythos right and it's like oh uh, yeah real serial killers who drink the blood of their victims because they think they're vampires but they're actually not and this was a uh, and I, I mean I, that's a tabloid story that i remember coming out you know in the 90s yeah. type of thing and obviously the conceit in this is that well, the big the you you find out of course that it is an actual vampire and not just know. an actual vampire like maybe the vampire cuz he wears like a fucking suit and a ridiculous cape it that part is pretty like hard to swallow it does not it, like he wears like the dracula outfit and it is times 10 dracula outfit with the like the the roughly red you know thing up front and the big collared cape and whatnot. It's pretty goofy. Um, I would say several aspects of the vamp, some aspects of the way the vampire is portrayed is really cool and other parts do not work. I think the voice actor, because uh, there's a guy and it looks like this huge, heavy prosthetic, you know, animatronic head. Uh, the, so there's a voice actor doing, doing the voice of the vampire. And he has like just a very normal voice in contrast to this face, like, you know, this mutated monster is like the vampire almost looks like a lizard. And I like the fact that there's this creature that has just a regular voice. You know, no, it sounds these... like he's being broadcast over a, like a radio station. Yeah. Like his voice is coming in through speakers. You know, and like I said, like this movie is cheaply, poorly made in, in certain respects, but that in an odd way almost helps it because it has this like pulpy noir sensibility that carries it out. And it's about this tabloid journalist. And this movie kind of feels like one of those tabloid articles come to life, you know, like I'm watching a tabloid type of thing, you know? Uh, 
I wouldn't want to want to say like it's meta in that sense, but it just kind of it it feeds into its own concept, and that in that respect that the the cheaper elements work most of the time somehow. You said it kind of feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Like, do you think it would fit nicely into like the Tales from the Crypt? Vibe, oh, surely, or? S- certainly, because it is. It's just obviously this meant more morality play of us like, oh, I'm following a vampire. Um, but I'm kind of a vampire myself. Like the, this one vampire drinks actual blood and I profit off of blood. You know, there's yeah. The blood sucking journalist. Right. Trope. You know, like yeah. there's even a part of like, where like the editor of the, or of the tabloid is like, Oh man, I can't, I can't, I, I hope this guy keeps killing more people. Cause this is such a good story, you know, <laughs> like wanting for death, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then the, the big the big twist at the end is that the vampire ends up framing the journalist for all the murders and that you know he gets killed by the police and then he ends up as the cover story of his own tabloid where it was like oh the night flyer was one of our own all along type of thing oh we knew it was him we suspected yeah. as much even though he doesn't have a pilot's license or a cape he does have a pilot's license. That's, oh yeah, that's right. But he doesn't have a cape. That's right. you know that that part. Ah, uh, that's the dead giveaway. No cape. Yeah. No cape. No case. If you it's if you can watch this thing on YouTube, do it. I can't believe the fans were right. They've been vindicated, Keith. They have. I'm sick. I'm sick to my stomach over it. I can't believe my memory was incorrect and I got fed a fucking half baked butchered version of a movie so i'm gonna go back and watch this and then, and then we can next, ar- we can argue about it absolutely next episode like hot your keith's hot take on uh the night flyer yeah we're, we're doing a reaction episode my reaction to your your experience with the night flyer so hell yeah get ready for redundant <laughs> redundant <laughs> shows well that's cool yeah i think the night flyer really embodies like what we're going for here as far as mm-hmm these forgotten movies and kind of just under the radar Stephen King properties. No, when you say radar, it's because airplanes use radar. Yeah. Nautical flying, uh all that stuff. Yep. I'm, that was hundred percent intentional and not just like a colloquial metaphor that I've heard throughout my life. (laughs) Uh, do you got any other little gems? Well, the movie I went out of my way to watch, that you've seen and I haven't was um, was the dark half. Oh yeah. And I watched the dark half because it is yet another in the line of Stephen King stories that centers around a writer and this idea that uh, writers have like maybe a sixth sense or a, sort of perceptual advantage to the rest of us or some kind of like sinister or otherworldly force that funnels the stories and ideas to them. Mm -hmm. That's definitely like a Stephen King uh, reoccurring trope. And in fact, totally uh, this movie, the dark half is about a very successful author who uh, writes under a, a, a secret pen name because he's not he is not proud of the the content of the stories or the style of fiction that he's writing but it's made him big money and so he kind of struggles with not unlike Stephen King he struggles with that part of his identity 
And then it's eventually revealed that not only does he have an actual separate identity, but he has a essentially what is a twin brother. Yes. And that, that twin brother has a psychic connection, and his uh, lurid and violent illegal activities are the basis for those stories. Well, yeah, but also, like, he has this parasitic twin that is cut out of him, you know, out of his brain when he, you know, they initially thought was a tumor. I was like, oh, shit, you had a twin in there that was absorbed. The stories that he writes manifest themselves in reality, and it's from the remains of this twin that that comes to life. You know, it's... He does write a lot of stories about um, writers, and... uh, that even though he's written very some very good stories about writers, I kind of get annoyed when writers write stories about writers, particularly if they do it a lot. But it works for me in this one for sure, and I and I think it makes it makes a lot of sense why he's a writer and stuff. And also the fact, you know, the the in this book or in this book and movie, the Dark Half, he gets blackmailed by somebody who discovers his you know, pseudonym identity and is like, I'll reveal you that you're the guy writing these sleazy novels, which is true in Stephen King's life. You know, he wrote as Richard Bachman and he was blackmailed uh, by somebody who was saying like, I figured it out. Like I'll reveal this. And then I think Stephen King just opted to go and, you know, expose himself at that point rather than give into this guy's demands. But it, you know, having that personal aspect of the story makes makes a greater justification for why he's a writer and how the writing plays into the the whole overarching narrative. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you you understood the story way better than I did. Well, you thought what did you what did you think was happening? Well, they cut out the twin, not right. unlike when they cut out the cancer in *Malignant*, Jerry. Right. Um, (laughs) it was my understanding that the twin grew up into a man but you're trying to tell me that as he writes the stories the stories turn him into a man yeah because you remember like they cut out the twin and it's just like an eyeball and a couple teeth that were in his brain yeah and then they bury his parents have that buried and then later in the the story, like, there is a hole in the ground where he is re- he has risen from the grave as a fully formed human being dressed in leather with a southern accent for some reason. Oh, okay. Maybe I was only half paying attention during that <laughs> section of the movie. <laughs> yes. Well, because when they... <laughs> <laughs> I thought he dug up a grave to, like caused trouble but he came out of the he grave came at, yeah oh that makes more i think cisco and ebert were like fucking napping through that part too because they were like they had the same gripe where they were like is this guy a ghost is he a man is he magic like we don't know and i was like uh, yeah if you went to the bathroom at that part the movie would make no sense yeah that does definitely help out quite a bit and it explains why he was sort of falling apart at the end right yeah he's he only exists. I, I mean, he's similar to Pennywise in that respect. He exists through the ether, the the belief in him, the the the, the when he when his when the Timothy Hutton's character writes, it brings that anger and aggression brings the character to life. 
Yeah, that is an interesting and like super on the nose for Stephen King. This idea that like, uh, yeah, when he's writing, he's smoking, he's drinking, he's got like he's meaner to his wife, and, yeah, and he's trying to get away from that and and stop doing all that and be a different guy. And he actually comes off as like very unlikable. Mm-hmm. The only person that seems to like him is his assistant at the university, and. It's mostly, I think, because she's just like, I want to be in a book. Yeah. Like, I wish my life was a story. And so when weird things start happening, she gets real excited. <laughs> she's the only one that's happy that all these people are getting murdered. Because she's like, hmm, this looks like a job for me. I'm going to solve the case. I, I think this, I like this one a lot. Um, it's not a masterpiece by any means. It's George R. Romero uh, directed it. Yeah, very competently think... directed and put together, I think, and some more stylish and and cool looking and interesting imagery in some parts than others. I think on a on like on a like a just like a filmmaking technical level, I think it's one of uh, Romero's like better made movies in that respect. Oh, definitely, it's one of his least cheap looking movies, and which is funny because this movie had like kept getting its budget cut in half, and they had to reuse parts portions of the score because they ran out of money, and there was like a gap in filming because they ran out of money, and then the movie wasn't released for like a year or two because they ran out of money and all this stuff. Yeah, I I, I would definitely would recommend giving this one a watch. It, it's kind of, I think it gets a lot of shit every now and then, um, for reasons i don't really understand because like i said it's not a masterpiece by any means but there's plenty of bad stephen king movies out there that people really like so i don't know what's i mean like honestly is like is it just the internet saying like this movie sucks and everyone going like yeah it sucks i haven't even seen it i don't know i think a lot of the there's a lot of corny aspects to it and very dated looking aspects and it's hard to root for the main character even though he has a wife and two kids it's funny you just said it's hard to root for this guy because he kind of sucks even though he has a wife and two kids and blah 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 and you just described pet cemetery in that respect you know oh yeah but that but that's that's i'm saying there's people love that one for some reason so like what's why is this one getting like trashed on yeah like this i would say this is easily a superior movie to pet cemetery by the end, I was more on board. However, I will always have a problem with... I know that Stephen King is very much into this notion of the oh, the, the evil man in black with the snakeskin boots. Yeah. You know, drinking, drinking a bottle of whiskey and all that shit. It's so fucking corny. And the greaser haircut and the fake forehead. Like, the guy looks like a character out of Dick Tracy. Well, yes, I agree with you, and I do think that it's even in this one, it is it is hard to like not laugh at that sometimes. But it works a little bit better in this story than it does in a lot of other stories because of the very fact that the the evil Timothy Hunton character is the manifestation of the writing and is kind of embodying the sleazy pulp character. Yes, that. Timothy Hutton's writes writes about under his pseudonym, you know. So it's like he he is he is not entirely a real character in that respect. He is supposed to be the sleazy, like you said, Dick Tracy type villain come to life. Yes. So in that respect, it works much better than it does in a lot of other you know movies where you're just supposed to take for granted this guy. You know, it makes sense. That doesn't mean I have to like it. 
That's true. That's uh, fair enough. I still think it's really goofy at times too, even with taking that into account. Yep. There also some of the gags are really fucking. I think the the they did the window washer gag where the guy gets scared by the window washer and the the guy holds up a sign that says like have a nice day or something. Yeah. But then later on, uh here comes the fucking villain on the window washer rig with like an evil grin on his face like ha. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, get I got to take a walk." Like Yeah, that's uh, pretty that's pretty goofy. I love I absolutely love the scene at the end with the birds at the cabin. It oh, doesn't yeah. make any the bird motif and concept doesn't make any sense to me i uh, i think there's some sort of like folklore because those are sparrows and i think there's some sort of folklore connecting it to it i think but it's something i had to look up if i recall about like what are folk sparrows represented in mythology and if you have to look it up it's probably well and that's where like the this gets really muddled because it's starting to mix like folklore and magic with uh, a biological occurrence yeah. And I think that's where it was like it got it got kind of hard for me to to swallow. I was like, "Wait, is this magic? Is this a ghost? Is it a an actual guy or not?" And it's like, "Well, it's kind of all uh, everything." I definitely think you could take the same concept and execute it better. Uh but I do think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I was I definitely didn't regret watching it, but I was I was wrestling with it the entire time, but I think if if anyone out there liked Malignant, yeah, yeah, if you like Malignant, uh, give this a watch because Malignant is essentially a cross between the dark half and Basket Case. Yeah, there you go. That's that's pretty much it. So yeah, um, if you like Malignant, give those two movies a watch. Also, there is uh, they came out with a dark half video game around the time of this relief, which is very baffling. So if anyone's ever played that, I don't know, maybe it's a fun game. looks like a bunch of horse shit but yeah it certainly does uh okay well uh, uh this is actually one of my favorite parts of doing these types of episodes yeah. is, is is exactly what we did and that's going back and seeing these movies that uh we never had a chance to watch yeah for one reason or another like like I was saying about uh, Graveyard Shift, how the, the artwork was so distinct and, and is arguably some of the best. I remember the Dark Half uh, video on the video shelf and never seeing it. And then even when uh, streaming video came around and seeing it floating around and, you know, thinking about watching it and and never getting around to it. But having a reason to watch it and, and talk about it, especially with someone who likes it. Yeah. Is a lot of fun. I agree. And it makes me want to watch more of these like Tommy knockers. And, uh, you know, obviously we don't need to watch a dream catcher. We've already watched that one. So give that episode a listen if you guys haven't already, but I definitely want to catch the night. I'm still trying to watch storm of the century. And I, I saw that one when it came out and I remember not being a huge fan of it. Yeah. Um, but I would watch it again. You know, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And then, you know, being pleasantly surprised by some of these movies, too. I remember I watched uh, 2004's Riding the Bullet. Uh-huh. That's another one I just caught live, and about, I caught it about halfway through. I wouldn't call it good, but it was definitely engaging and interesting. Well, it another, was like a uh... weird, like, shot, like a music video. It's about a guy trying to, he's trying to get to 
a hospital to see his dying relative, maybe his mother, and he encounters ghosts and and ghostly figures along the highway and they all have kind of different things to say and they're teaching him things and his story is unfolding as he interacts with them so that's another uh that's another mick garris joint right oh there, yeah so. it is you you can bet your bottom dollar yeah and even some of these newer ones i think i'd like to get around to watching like 1922 and a good marriage and Gerald's game, all that Ger- good stuff. So Gerald's game's Ger- 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 Gerald's game is great. Nineteen twenty two is not a waste of time, but it's only okay. It definitely was. It's definitely I could see you know was a short story, and that's probably where it should have remained. You know, as part of that or as part of an anthology. You know, not a f- two hour movie, um, but it's good. I enjoyed it. Uh, marriage story. I don't even know what that one is. So. Hmm. Real quick before we wrap this up, uh, do you yeah. have anything you want to say about Dolores Claiborne? I love Dolores Claiborne, and I watched it for the first time a year or two ago, and what a good movie. Yeah, I feel like that's arguably the biggest forgotten Stephen King movie. Well, and it was like it was very well received when it came out. Uh, but yeah, I think it just, like as you said, like people not remembering it. It's probably right up there because it's one of his stories that doesn't have anything supernatural or uh, monstrous or ghostly in it. It's just regular ass people. Um, it's not a high concept, uh, but man, is it good. Don't want to really give anything away about that one. But yeah, check that one out for sure if you haven't seen it, because it's one that I kind of always put off to the side for those reasons of like well where's the monster where's the where's the ghost and man do i wish i hadn't done that well there you have it i mean i think that that pretty much does it on uh the best of the rest for stephen king yeah go check these out or don't check out some different ones or don't go watch hey what about what about uh uh dean Koontz? you know like he's got movies besides phantoms Go check those out. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. No, it's no, he doesn't. It's pretty much, much just phantoms. Just phantoms. What about R.L. Stein? Why can't we get? Why isn't R.L. Stein this prolific? Can we get more Fear Street movies? Maybe. Oh man, know. yeah, please. Those were great. Uh, well, I guess you know he had all his TV shows and stuff and whatnot. And yeah, that was all goosebumps. But like, what else? Yeah. What else is he doing? I mean, I didn't know that he. I didn't even wasn't even aware of Fear Street as a pre-existing property until those movies came out oh i only knew him as i mean i knew that he had written stuff that wasn't goosebumps but that's the only thing i was aware of of him as a writer and i didn't even read goosebump books growing up i think they came out started coming out at a time where i was like this isn't scary enough you know i just i think i just just missed that wave well that's a shame oh but i hey i liked the goosebumps movie with jack black I liked the Fear Street movies. Yeah, maybe I maybe I should go back there and read some of those. Best of the rest of R.L. Stein. Um, yeah, check these movies out. Don't check them out. I, I think you hit on something right there. Like above all else, read a fucking book. How about yeah. that? Cool. Well, thanks, guys. We'll be back next time with something else that you don't want to listen to. Uh, yeah, same then. same similar trash time, similar trash channel. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Keith. Send us out. Sometimes the book is better. And until (laughs) next time, the dumpster is closed. Goodbye, everybody.
show's over. Everybody go back to doing what you were doing. <laughs>